As Pastor Spencer said, today's Palm Sunday. We want to look at one of the passages that see Jesus' triumphal entry. And so we'll be in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. And so you can turn there. But I'd also put my finger in Psalm 118 because we'll be focusing there as well. So John 12 and also Psalm 118 together is where we'll be. Beginning in John 12, verses 12 through 19. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. See, at this point, Jesus had been in ministry for about three years, roughly three years. And if you read prior to this in in John's Gospel, you'll see what had been going on recently. Some big things had been happening. Recently, Jesus had been in Bethany, And he raised a man from death, Lazarus. He had them open the tomb. You remember the story. He called forth Lazarus' name, and here he comes, bound in his his burial cloths, walking out of the tomb, alive and well. And so this had kind of spread. People had heard about this. But also what we see in 11 and, and before John chapter 12 is that Jesus had been anointed. You remember this story, Jesus being anointed by Mary here here in John 12 at the very beginning. And I want to read it for us, verses 1 through 8, because this is important, about him being anointed with precious ointments and oil by Mary. And so look at the first verse of chapter 12. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This really helps set up what is going on during the triumphal entry here. We have to remember As we celebrate this day with all the praise and the shouting, and I'm sure many churches uh, around the globe, which is fine, I don't have anything against this, but they're probably even waving palm branches and doing a processional. 
right? And talking about this, this day that we celebrate, Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry, we have to remember that what Jesus is actually doing here is he's riding to his death. That is his focus. That is his goal. That is what is going to happen. And this is what he has been talking about. Even here is what we read there at the beginning of chapter 12, right? Saying, she's anointing me for, for burial. And while the people around him didn't understand this, Jesus knew exactly what was going on. And so I want us to remember that this morning, that Jesus' purpose on this earth was now coming to fruition, his, his death. And so even, even his name that we often refer to, which we're going to be starting a series on Sunday night where one of our men in our church will be preaching on this. But even the name Jesus Christ points to what his purpose was on this earth. Jesus being Yahweh saves, Christ being the anointed one, the Messiah. We see that playing out before our eyes, but it's happening maybe in a different way than people would think. Jesus knows as he rides on this colt that he is going to be the sacrifice that would take away the sin for his people. That's what he is looking to. That is what he is seeing, and that is what is taking place. So you have a, you have, yes, you have a scene of, of triumph, but I want us to try to remember what Jesus' focus was as this scene unfolds. Now, we also know that what's taking place here in the triumphal entry is something that had been prophesied about long ago. It wasn't just something playing out randomly. That long ago, it was told that this is what would happen. I think it's actually on your bulletins. I think it's the verses that I had printed on the bulletins this week. But Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, which was quoted in what we already read, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. This prophecy is well known throughout Israel. And we see it playing out with Jesus riding in on this, on this donkey. The people shouting praises and in their mind thinking that this is what's going to happen. Verse 10, what we just read. He's going to shout peace to the nations, right? The battle bow should be cut off. Israel's about to come back into importance is what everybody's thinking. Here it comes. It's, it's about to happen. And so even the prophecies of old are being played out. And what is happening here with Jesus. And I want to direct our attention this morning as well. As I said to Psalm 118. Because this is another place. That is quoted in what we've already read. But in Psalm 118 we see a very beautiful parallel to our passage this morning. I really think it is a beautiful one. And I want us to take some time to look at it together. To see how Psalm 118 correlates with John chapter 12. And the triumphal entry. So let's read together Psalm 118. We're going to start in verse 19 and read it through verse 27 together. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he had made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You see, in this psalm, we have a king. Some would say it's King David. Maybe it might be. But in this psalm, we have a king who has obviously gone through some sort of hardship. There's been some difficulty in his life or even in his nation, his kingdom. There's been something that happened. But now the picture that we have as we start verse 19 is the nation or the king is on the other side of that hardship and even standing victorious. And so there's victory in the land. And so as a result of this victory, what the king wants to do and what we're reading here is the king is making his way to the temple with the people. And he's going to the temple with a purpose. He wants to praise and thank God for victory. He wants to worship God for the victory that has taken place. This is a very noble thing of the king to do, right? I mean, he recognizes that apart from God, this victory wouldn't have happened. He, he could boast about himself as being king and that he brought the nation through this victory or to this victory, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he praises and worships God and gives God the, the full credit. And he says this much, right, in verse, in verse 22. He says, the stones the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, there in verse 23. Yes, the king recognized himself as the cornerstone that God had given to the people. Yet, we see that the people had rejected this cornerstone, had had in some way rejected the king. Again, I don't know how all of this plays out with this king. But I imagine it had to be difficult for this king to be in this position. right? Placed as king by God to lead these people. Given this role by God. And so again, if, it's, if this is King David, it's obvious to see how this would happen. How King David would have to run for his life, even from his own son. People would turn their back on him. But yet, we know in scripture that David was the one anointed king by God himself. God chose David to lead Israel. And now the people of Israel are rejecting this king that God gave them. Like I said in verse 23, we see that the Lord would not allow this to happen, this rejection. Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The cornerstone that God had set in place for his kingdom with this king could not be moved or shaken by some people who were going to reject him. It didn't matter because this was God's plan. This was what God had set in place. And this was going to be his will. His will was going to be done. And so therefore, the king declares to the people in verse 24 there, that the Lord had given them this day for rejoicing. A very popular verse. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You've probably said this before and maybe you didn't even know you were quoting a verse. You thought you were singing a song. You're quoting a passage here. Well, why is the king saying this? He's saying this is a great and marvelous day because we have begun to realize finally that you have set in place this, place, this cornerstone for our salvation, for our help. So what the king is looking for is the king's looking for a party. He's looking for a party to begin, for the people to recognize what God has done for him and in doing so for him, the king, has done for all the people in the kingdom. And so he wants to celebrate. And so after just a tumultuous time, now is time for celebration, rejoicing, and partying. 
Oh, maybe some of you have been part of that this week. A lot of our kids were on spring break, and so you hear from them, now it's time to party. I've, I've suffered through school for this long. They give me a break, and so a lot of us take advantage of that. We go on vacation, right? So you have the dredges of work and school. Now let's make way for a time to have fun, to get together, to be excited about it. And that's what the king is looking for. Let's celebrate. Let's rejoice. The Lord has given us this day. Let us be glad. Let us rejoice together in this. And so in verses 25 through 27, we see the people respond to the king. The king has been saying a lot of things, and now the people respond. And it's interesting, their first response. Verse 25, they say, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. They're praying for salvation. And the words that they would be crying out is Hosanna. Hosanna, save us, we pray. It's like they're saying here, maybe you've heard this. I've seen this on movies. This isn't a part of my life, but I've seen this on movies, you know, in, in England and places that have king. Have you ever heard him say, Lord, save the king? Right? Lord, save the king. Well, there's a reason for that. If he saves the king, it saves us. Right? If the king flourishes and does well, we, that means we've won this war too. That means we then will flourish and do well also. And sir, so they're crying out, Lord, save the king. Lord, bring success to us and to our country. That is what they're asking for. And they're not asking of it to the king. They're going above him to the Lord. Save us, O Lord. So the people of God and the king have a desire for them to succeed. That's what they want to see. They want to work for the kingdom and in the kingdom, and they want the work of the kingdom, Israel in this case, to spread. To not just be here, but to, to spread and to go out with great success. And so then as we get to verse 26, it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They're shouting their blessings now to their king who God has given them. They recognize his authority as coming from God and from God alone. And so they are praising him and, and worshiping God for their king. And they want their king to hear it. They want the king to know that they love him, that they understand the work that he is doing. They understand the importance of the work that he is doing. And so they are shouting this to him. <clears throat> so then as we get to verse 27, they recognize the great blessings of God and the kingdom. And they want to praise him. And they want to praise him in a specific way. They want to praise God with sacrifices. And so it says there at the end of verse 27, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. They call for this sacrifice to take place, to bring it forward before all the people, tie it to the altar, and we are going to give it to the Lord with great thanksgiving because of what he has done for us. They wanted to give the best that they had, the best that they had to show God their appreciation for what he had done in their kingdom and in their land and what he was continuing to do. This is a little synopsis, I guess, of, of Psalm 118. And it really parallels well, I think, with what's happening here with Jesus in John chapter 12 and the triumphal entry. You see the king in verses 19 through 20 came and was going to the temple and was going through the righteous gate. And this king, it says, would lead his people 
to the temple to worship God in the temple because of the victory. Here in John 12, we have Jesus who was on the road to Jerusalem and most likely entered through the eastern gate of town. Within the east gate was also a place called the beautiful gate. Because this was the gate that led to the temple. It was the closest gate to the temple. And so most likely coming from the Mount of Olives, this would be the route that Jesus would be taking as the people are worshiping him and singing praises to him. And he's entering the gate. And what is his focus? His focus is to go to the temple. And it's interesting. I don't know if you've thought about this before. I haven't thought about it too much. But part of Passover was all of the families had to bring sacrifices with them. And so there's no doubt in my mind that on this road, as, as Jesus is, is on, the, on the donkey and he's riding and there's all these people surrounding him and surrounding everybody else are sheep. They're heading to the temple. They're heading to Jerusalem. The families are walking and they're bringing their sacrifice with them because this is what they had to do. And they would no doubt enter the eastern gate because it was closest to the temple. And they're taking their sheep to the temple to do the sacrifice that they were called to do in the Old Testament for Passover. So here you have Jesus making his way to the temple. And we see in Mark chapter 11, he would actually go into that temple and cleanse the temple. He would drive people out for what they were doing in the temple. But in the book of Hebrews, what we see is we see that Jesus actually has come not, not in holy places made by hands or with hands, but in Hebrews, the writer tells us that Jesus actually enters heaven itself. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. It says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so again, you think about what Jesus was seeing, what he was picturing, what was happening, all the prophecy that is being fulfilled, the way maybe that we see it, that we think about it. But as we've been talking about in the book of Ephesians, there's a spiritual battle that is taking place. And what Jesus is actually doing is he is riding to conquer in the spiritual realities. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is entering a temple through a gate, not made with hands, but the one in the heavenly places. And then in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, it says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the promise that we have as Christians. Today we see Jesus, right? We picture Jesus riding into town on a donkey. And we know the stuff that's behind it, being declared king. We know where he's headed. He's headed to the cross, but we have been promised as Christians for those who've by faith trusted in him that Jesus is going to come again. And when he comes again, it's not to enter some gate made with hands. No, it's, it's to come again to, to take his people and what Revelations calls the pearl gate, the gate that we'll get to go through for the final time, to be with our savior forever. So what we have here kind of is a picture of this beautiful thing that we wait again for that triumphal entry when we get to go into that, that pearl gate with our Lord and Savior. Going back to Psalm 118, we see the king, though rejected by some, has been placed by God in his position. 
And we find that the people finally declare that this is a marvelous thing. Well, it's easy to compare Jesus to this, isn't it? Here we have Jesus. He's, he's riding into town. He's being praised by so many people. Yet, there's also people in the group who are shunning him. There's people in the group who are rejecting him, mainly the religious leaders of the day. They don't like what's happening. It's frustrating to them. Even at the end of what we read there in John 12, you can see the frustration. The Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. We're not gaining any ground on this guy. He keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they were very frustrated by this. But yet here is the one Jesus that the religious leaders have been waiting for. They've been waiting for this their whole life. Generations have been waiting for this, for the Messiah to come, for the anointed one to come and to save his people. Yet they reject him. And in fact, most of the people who are praising and worshiping him on this road would reject him in a few short days as well. Right? They, they praise him and they worship him, but very soon they are going to reject him as well. And we see, as Peter would preach in Acts chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, as he's speaking to this group, he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, talking to the Pharisees. The builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Just like this king in Psalm 118 Put as king by God. People would reject him, but they're pushing against a cornerstone that cannot be moved because God put him in that position for this nation. And so now we see the king rejoicing because the people recognize this. Similarly here with Jesus, what Peter is talking about there in Acts chapter 4 is what we celebrate today. You rejected him. The cornerstone. This is Jesus, the one that salvation is given to. There's no other name but his name. And you rejected him, the true cornerstone. We see in Psalm 118, how the people shout Hosanna to God. They say, bring us salvation when the people finally speak after the king had been speaking. They say, Hosanna, bring us salvation. Here on this road, but leading up to Jerusalem, the people would put their coats on the ground. They would take the palm branches. They would wave them. And they would shout Hosanna as Jesus would ride through them, recognizing that salvation has come through this one. This is the one, this, this Jesus of Nazareth, he is the one that God is going to use to save his people. But the problem, the problem is that salvation was coming in a much different way than they had expected or that they desired. Because you have Jesus riding in on a colt instead of a war horse. It would have been much grander. It would have been probably a lot more special to the people if, if Jesus would have got on the biggest stallion of the day and rode in with a sword on his side and military walking alongside of him for the people to think it's about to happen. The army has assembled here for Passover they're going to follow Jesus. We're going to take this place back over. Rome is going to be overthrown. But no. Instead, what we have is we have the Savior, the anointed one, on a colt. 
on a donkey. His humbleness on, on full display for everybody to see. In Psalm 118, the people praise God for their king. And they recognize again that his position comes from none other but from God himself. They yell this for Jesus, the exact quote that we have from Psalm 118, verse 26. But they add something at the end, don't they? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is the quote. But they add on to the end, even the king of Israel. The people seem to recognize that Jesus was the king that had been promised. Jesus was the king from the line of David that had been promised for years and years and years and years. And it was finally taking place for them to see, for them to be a part of, for them to witness. And so the excitement level is so high. The chosen one of Israel, the anointed one of Israel, the one who would remove all of Israel's reproach is finally here and we get to see it. I think the only way I can compare it would be as if Christ came for us today. For us to say, it's finally here. And I get to witness it. It's happening during my time. Here it is. It's taking place. Here we go. Can you imagine how excited they had to have been. And they treat him how they should. They treat him like the king that he is. It really had to be a wonderful scene. That whole path all the way to Jerusalem, the people worshiping him, the people praising him. I imagine the disciples, while it seems we're a little confused, had to be on cloud nine. For so long, Jesus had been telling them, just be quiet. Don't tell anybody who I am. I mean, he would even come right out and ask people, who am I? And they'd say, I am the Christ. You're right, but tell nobody. Shh. But now all of a sudden, Jesus is letting it happen. They're crying out, Hosanna. They're, they're worshiping as the king. They're recognizing him as the Messiah. And oddly enough, Jesus isn't saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Instead, he's, he's letting it happen. And so it had to just be a, a glorious and a, and a wonderful scene for everybody who was there. But yet remember what I said at the very beginning. While Jesus is witnessing this scene, no doubt, he knows where he's going. He knows what it's leading to. He knows each and every person there who will stay by his side and each and every person there who's going to abandon him, even his disciples, even the, his loved ones who he's, take, he's took three years to care for, to teach and to train. And so while this is an awesome scene and it's a victorious looking scene, Again, it's not a victory that is expected, but it's the exact victory that Jesus has come for. And it's what leads us to our last comparison. The way that people worship God in Psalm 118. It's really the only way that they knew to worship God because it was prescribed to them in Leviticus with offerings, with sacrifices. And so the people do the right thing in Psalm 118. They Go to the temple, they're praising, they're, they're worshiping God. The king is worshiping God. But that's not enough. They, they need a sacrifice. And so they say, go get the sacrifice and bind it to the altar. And why are they going to do this? Because they're going to kill it. They're going to kill it. 
It's going to die, and it's going to die so that they can praise God rightly. They want to worship him in the right way. Well, as we look to Jesus, here they worship Jesus as king. And as I mentioned, no doubt in my mind, they are surrounded by families with lambs. There's probably families, and again, I, I can't tell you exactly this is what happened, but I really think it's very probable. As they sit there with their palm fronds and dad takes his coat off and sets it on the ground for Jesus, mom or one of the kids probably holding the rope that has the lamb. Uh, probably watching. And they're praising this Jesus as the king of kings, the one that they've been waiting for, not understanding that the one that sits on that donkey that's riding into town is the true lamb that's going to take away the sins of the world. Yes, that lamb that they have by their side will be enough for one year. But they're going to have to come again the next year. And they're going to have to come again the next year. And for the rest of their life, they're going to have to keep coming and bringing that lamb. And this is probably what they are thinking about. They're not thinking that this is going to change. Oh, Jesus might come and overthrow Rome, and we're going to be able to worship freely, but I'm still going to have to bring this lamb because my sin still needs to be dealt with. And according to Leviticus, this is how it's done. We celebrate Passover. We take the best of what we have, and we give it to him. And that lamb's death is going to cover my sin. But little did they know that the true lamb that they needed is sitting on that donkey. John chapter 1, verse 29. This is early on in Jesus' ministry. This is, this is uh, John the Baptist speaking. He's baptizing people. Many people is coming out to him. And it says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, John the Baptist had recognized this at the very beginning. He recognized what Jesus' ministry was going to be about. And he prophesies here, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's Jesus who would allow himself. I want you to picture this. Jesus is on the path where? To be bound on the altar. So in Psalm, they celebrate and they take the sacrifice, willingly or unwillingly. They grab that little lamb or that sheep or whatever it was that sacrifice was going to be. And why do they tie it to the altar? So it don't run. So it doesn't get away. But here we have Jesus riding on this donkey, going to the altar. They didn't have to bind him. They didn't have to strap him down. Jesus went there all on his own. And he did it because the sin of man needed to be forgiven. The sin of those that was around him, the sin of those Pharisees who would reject him, the sin of those Roman soldiers who would put the nails in his hands. Jesus would go and be the festal sacrifice bound to the altar willingly. And this is what shows us today that he is the king. Our king is our sacrifice. Our king is our savior. Our king who rides in is our Lord. And so the people in the Psalms here, yes, they, they recognize that their king couldn't save the people, didn't they? Because who did they ask for salvation from? From the Lord, not the king. 
They recognize, oh, this king can be great and all, but salvation does not come from him. And so they asked it of the Lord. These people didn't recognize this of the king that rode into town that day either. Jesus, their king, yes, was going to save them. Yes, victory was about to happen, but it was from something much, much bigger than some Roman occupation. It was much bigger than some, some man-made wall or fear that we might have. Jesus was riding into town to conquer for men sin forever. Our true enemy plays out in different ways. Again, like we've been talking about in the spiritual realm. But Christians, let us not forget that Jesus has conquered once and for all for those by grace through faith who will trust in him has conquered for all your greatest enemy, sin. Now you might not think that that's your greatest enemy. You might watch the news and you have a lot of other enemies that you think about. It's what brings you the most fear. It's what scares you the most. You probably spend most of your prayer life focusing on those things. God do this, God do that. And we should be praying for these things. But remember this, if you're a Christian, he's already conquered the biggest thing that needed to be conquered. And that's sin. It has no hold on you. It has no reign on you. And the only reason we can say that is because our king willingly let himself be bound to the altar. He was willing to be the sacrifice that we need. And so this is why Jesus could say later on in John chapter 12, after he goes into Jerusalem, there's other things that happen, but Jesus talks, and in John chapter 12, verse 32, this is what he says, talking about when he's bound. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You see, this is a big deal. Because gathered in Jerusalem, there are some estimates that say uh, right before the temple was destroyed around 70 AD, that the Passovers prior to that would have had almost 3 million people in Jerusalem at those days. Uh, 3 million people, that's, that's a lot of people. And it wasn't just Jewish people. It wasn't just Israelites. You have to think other people were like, what's going on here? You have to think there were some shrewd businessmen thinking, three million people in town, I'm going to go sell stuff there. Right? And what you have taking place as Jesus is here and he's riding in town is, is not just Israelites, not just Jewish people. And this was a problem for the Pharisees. And this is why they said, you see, you are gaining nothing. Look, what do they say? It doesn't say, look, Israel's going after him. They say, look, the whole world is coming after him. The whole world is being drawn to him. Now it's interesting because that's exactly what Jesus said. He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people, all people to myself. This is what Jesus came for. Yes, he was fulfilling prophecy. Yes, all this was happening. Yes, he was an Israelite and he was coming to save his people, but it was much bigger even than that. He was fulfilling what Israel had been called to do ever since its inception, was to be a light to the nations, not just Israel. And so Jesus was doing just this. He is walking into town as a light to all nations. In Hebrews chapter 13, and I'll end with this passage. 
beginning in verse 9 through 16. This is what it says. It says, do not, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This may seem technical, but it's actually a very great important thing that happens in Jesus' death. See, Jesus wasn't sacrificed in the Holy of Holies. They didn't take him and put him on the mercy seat. This is where the lambs of the Passover would have to go for the, for the salvation of Israel for another year. Have, the high priest would have to go into the Holy of Holies and, and sacrifice, and everything would have to be perfect, and they would trust that God would, would show his mercy again on the nation. And so when we say that, well, Jesus wasn't sacrificed there, he was sacrificed outside of the gate. He was actually sacrificed outside of the city. Well, why would this happen? Why would this take place? Well, the writer of Hebrews is telling us why. He says, let us go outside the gate. The sacrifices that keep happening in the Holy of Holies, not needed anymore. Jesus died outside the gate. Why? To bear the reproach of the world. Not just a nation, but of the world. And so this morning, I can preach to a room full of Gentiles and tell you the good news. This Jesus that rides into town as king actually is your king, or he can be your king. So the fact is, some of you here this morning, he's not your king. You've never, by grace through faith, trusted in Jesus with your life. You've never trusted in him to forgive you of your sins. You've, you've never done that. You say, well, I come to church sometimes and I believe in God. Okay, that's fine. Doesn't do anything for you. Have you, by grace through faith, put your trust fully and completely in the work of Jesus and what he came to do? Have you looked at and said, I believe you to be king. I believe you to be Lord. I believe you to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who can fulfill Hosanna. Lord, save us. Have you trusted in that? That's what we celebrate when we celebrate Palm Sunday. We have Good Friday. We celebrate Easter together. We celebrate the fact that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Right? We celebrate that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. We celebrate the fact that he did willingly die on a cross for my sin, to bear my reproach, to bear my shame, so that I don't have to earn my salvation. I don't have to go to God and tell him every little thing that I did and hope that the justice scales fall in my way. No. He died so that the justice scale is Jesus everything. 
He did it all. And I place everything of me in him. And I'm found in him. And then next Sunday, we celebrate the fact he didn't just die, but he rose again. He rose again, and the Bible tells us he ascended on high to where now he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf each and every day. That Jesus' ministry is still very much active, very much going, and very much effective. And so this week, as you go about your week, for those of you who haven't trusted in Christ, I hope that the Holy Spirit will be bugging you all week. There's no doubt you're going to hear about church. There's no doubt you're going to see things about Easter services and churchy things. And I hope that is a constant reminder of your need to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And I hope and pray that you'll do that. I hope by faith you will trust in him and be saved by his grace. For those of us this morning who've done that, we know that we are his child. We know that he loves us. We've celebrated many Palm Sundays. We've gone through a lot of Good Fridays. We've sat in service for a lot of Easter's. We've came up on stage and took pictures of ourselves and our kids after Easter. We've done it numerous and numerous times. Let us not make it just old hat. Let us not make sure that it's not just tradition that it's not just something we do to feel good, but let us remember that we celebrate this time of year, this season, because of what it represents. Because what actually took place 2,000 and some years ago, Jesus physically rode on a donkey into town as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He physically died, and he physically rose again. And he physically sits at the right hand of the Father now. And that's who we are. We are people found in Christ. We are Christ followers who've put our full trust in him. And today and this week, we should be like the people of Psalm 118. Let us party. Let us praise. Let us worship him. Our king is the king. Our king is the cornerstone of which nothing can be toppled. It can never be moved. This is, this is my king. Oh, not some king of this world. No, Jesus is my king. He cannot be shaken. He cannot be moved. And therefore, I can't either. Because his kingdom will not fail and I'm in his kingdom. I'm an adopted child into the family of God. So he is my king. He is my Lord. I hope that's the case for you. If you would, let's bow your heads and close your eyes. We close out service. We're going to close singing a song like we always do. But as always, you are free to respond as you need to this morning. Maybe you need to seek God's face in salvation. Maybe by his grace this morning, he has opened your eyes to the truth of his word and who Jesus is. And you're sitting there right now thinking, I don't grasp everything. I don't know everything, but I realize I'm a sinner. And what Jesus came to die for, I'm realizing for the first time, he did that for me. Maybe that's you this morning. And maybe as we sing this song or as I pray, you just need to take the time to recognize that to God and say, God, I thank you for Jesus and what he did for me. Because you know in doing that, the Bible says, that you saying, I have faith in this, I trust in this. And the Bible says that you will be saved. He's not gonna say no. He's not gonna slam the door in your face. 
Bible says that's the Spirit working in your life and moving you to recognize God's grace in your life. So I hope by faith you'll trust in them this morning. For the rest of us here this morning who've trusted in Christ, I hope you'll take this time to praise him. I hope you'll take this time to worship him. He deserves our praise. He's not just our king, but he's also our savior. He's also our sacrifice. He's everything. And so let us worship him as such. God, I thank you for how good you are to us. God, I thank you that before time ever began, this plan was set in place. It's not a plan that you made up on the fly when sin happened. It wasn't one day Jesus was like, you know what? I'll do it. This was the plan all along. That the Son of God would be wrapped in flesh and dwell among men. That he'd be tempted in every way just as we are, yet perfect and sinless, spotless. That he would willingly ride into Jerusalem knowing what's going to happen in six short days. Knowing that he's going to be tried, that he's going to be accused of being God. And that he would willingly go to that cross for our sin. God, I, I ask that you would help us this week to worship and praise you how we should. Help us not to be too distracted by the busyness of our life. To be reflective of this week. Help us not to be cynical of how the media portrays it or how uh, the retail markets treat it. Where we, I know as Christians we can get frustrated with these seasons because what is, God, help us to get rid of those distractions in our head. That's fine. If they're going to do that, so be it. It doesn't have to be that way for me. So God, help me, to, help me to worship you this week how I should, to be thankful, to praise you for how good you are to us. This that Jesus went through in this last week of his life, this cross is what I deserved. It's what I deserve. It should be my story. And God, thankfully, it is through Christ. As we talked about last week, you've given us his righteousness, his works. So God, help us again to worship and praise you because of that. He is our King, our Lord, our Savior, the anointed one that the world had waited for. God, we love you this morning. God, as we sing this last song, I, I pray that it would be praise to you. God, I pray that Christians in the pews would be responding to your word how they should. And again, I pray for those who are lost in their sin, that you would help them to see the truth of your salvation found only in Jesus. I'd be with us now as we sing, we ask in Christ's name, amen.